Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, can the B.C. government's new payment model for family doctors help retain physicians in the province? Plus, we speak to Vancouverites who have recovered from addiction who say decriminalizing drugs is a wrong way to go. Plus, tunnel breakthrough. We get an update on the construction of the Broadway subway line. And sportscaster Scott Rintoul joins us as we discuss his new podcast series looking at the Canucks West Coast Express era. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's first focus on the government's announcement to decriminalize the use of hard drugs. Now, as of yesterday, BC began a three-year pilot program where authorities will stop prosecuting people for carrying small amounts of heroin, meth, ecstasy, crack cocaine as a part of an effort to fight a drug overdose crisis. Uh, many people who support the program say it will help uh, destigmatize those who use drugs. Now, our first guest called in uh, during yesterday's show. I found her story to be quite compelling. Uh, Denise Santanato is a former drug user who lost her brother to fentanyl five years ago, and she joins us now. Denise, thank you for speaking to us today. Hi, Jazz. Thank you for having me. Uh, why don't you like the move towards decriminalization? Um, because I, I feel that it's just another step in the constant enabling that uh, services are providing to the drug addicts. Instead of helping them get off drugs, it's just making it okay to do drugs and to give them drugs. And instead of guiding them to treatment and, and detox and, and what have you, it's just a constant um, funnel of enabling and I've worked in the system myself. I ran a youth detox. I have fostered teenage girls. And, and I can tell you it's really a system of constant enabling. And uh, nobody gets any better with us. What, what do you say to those who say, look, it's, it's, it's a small amount for personal use. We're not talking about a significant amount. Police will still be spending time on enforcement. But in regards to the smaller amounts that people have, that's not the best use of police time. Well, I want the listeners to know that um, two and a half grams of heroin is more than 50 doses of heroin. And that is a lot for personal use. And uh, when I used to use drugs back in the late 80s until I cleaned up in 1991, uh, I used to sell heroin. And I would buy one or two grams at a time, and that would be enough for me to sell throughout the day and keep me going in my habit. And anybody who's carrying two and a half grams of heroin is not carrying it for personal use. And multiply that by, what, a hundred, a thousand times for fentanyl? Mm-hmm. It's insanity. It's just insanity as far as I'm concerned. How were you able to get off drugs? Um, I had used everything from crystal meth, which, by the way, being able to carry a couple of grams of crystal meth I did not know fact from, rea- uh, from fiction when I was high on crystal meth. The, the, there, is, there are so many people with mental health issues, and a lot of this stems from the use of crystal meth or it's enhanced by it. It's just such a dangerous drug that for, for, a, for an addict to be able to carry it around is just insanity. And, and they say it's to reduce or take away the stigma of using drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother, oh, oh, sorry, we were talking about what got me off. Um, when it got so bad that I could no longer continue with my life, I was using more heroin that I could sell. I was on the verge of selling my body. I was on the verge of being at Maine and Hastings. I was at the verge of killing myself. I, had no, I was afraid of going to jail. I had no option but to dig myself out of this horrible hole that I was in where I had to shoot up 12 times a day just to not be junk sick. I would wake up in the night detoxing and I would have to shoot up. I overdosed. My dogs brought me back by licking me constantly until I could come to consciousness and keep breathing on my own. Um, It just got so bad that I had no other choice than to clean up. And once I made that choice, I told my family what was going on, and they put me, they helped me get into a 12-step program. And I stayed there for 12 years and worked on all the issues of what led me down that path of destruction and uh, changed my life around. And that was in 1991. So that took you 12 years 
uh, judging you know based on your description, you hit bottom. You decided that you want to clean up and and fix your life, but th- th- that process still took you twelve years, right? No, it didn't take twelve years. It actually took a lot less. It probably took a. Um, it was only about a year until I was able to hold down a job. Um, less than that, when I had self-esteem, I started learning skills that I could do, like planting a garden and going, wow, I can do this. And just starting to rediscover the things that I used to know how to do. But I did stay in the program for 12 years um, just to, because it takes, you know, time to work on a lifetime of abuse and, mm-hmm. and why we abuse ourselves. It's not an overnight fix. But I did stay there for 12 years, and and, uh, when it was time for me to leave, I left, and, you know, and I've been fine ever since. I've been married for 23 years. My husband and I own a successful canine care company for the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything is going good. We own our home. Um, We couldn't ask for a better life, but to think that I had to shoot up 12 times a day just to not be junk sick it's a different person. So if you were a premier for a day and you had to fix this system, is in your mind, spend more money on treatment centers, um, uh, more money on uh, housing, education, those things rather than the decriminalization? Absolutely. I mean, how much money have we spent on this experiment, just getting it to this point when we've already been doing it for the last five years? And you know, the, the, the police have decriminalized this years ago, and it's just gotten worse. We know the outcome. It's just getting worse. We need to revamp Riverview into a modern-day version that will help addicts and help those with mental health issues, help them get clean, give them life skills, help them participate in life and get off the drugs. Because people keep talking about safe supply. Uh, there is no such thing. As safe supply. But what people are not talking about is the hell it is to live in constant addiction, whether you're getting it handed to you daily mm-hmm. or whether you have to work for it and do all kinds of insidious activities to get it. Yeah. Denise, uh, I really appreciate you joining us today, uh, telling your story. I know it's not easy, uh, but I really appreciate it. And uh, you've been incredibly thoughtful. And most importantly, I'm very happy that uh, you're in an incredible place in your life right now, that uh, you're able to contribute uh, through your experience. And wonderful here that you that uh, you got your home and, and you've got your business and you, and you have family and, and loved ones around you. I'm so incredibly happy for you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jeff. Have a great day. Our next guest is Andrew Tablotny. Uh, he is a re- Richmond resident who lost his son from a drug overdose. He called our show yesterday as well. Uh, his son, Curtis, passed away uh, in December of 2022. The official cause of death uh, was a drug overdose. The unofficial one, according to Andrew, is the inadequacies of the psychiatric medical system in our province. He joins us now. Andrew, thank you for speaking to us today. Thanks, Chaz. Appreciate it. Uh, first and foremost, you're not necessarily against the, the the announcement yesterday. I think you're, you, from my sense of the the conversation yesterday, our brief conversation, was you'd like to see a lot more than just decriminalization occur. Correct. I mean, the problem is we're looking at two things. You're ta- two aspects. You're looking at hardcore users, and then you're looking at recreational users or sometimes users. Like my son was not a regular user, but he used the drugs to try and quell the four voices that were speaking in his head. It was the only way he could get relief from them screaming at him and telling him to kill himself. Uh, so, there's, you know, there's, so there's different aspects or, or different people across the spectrum that we need to look at. Um, there, there, there's, you know, in the province, we've got different silos. People are, you know, there's, there's different groups that are out there trying to do things, but there's no overarching um, body that seems to be coordinating things um you know and one solution that we we had had a meeting with uh, minister whitehead uh, after my son's passing and we said you know why aren't we using our pharmacists uh you know people trust your pharmacy they know all the personal information about you uh, why aren't we having test strips there we we issue Nor- norcan narcan uh from there mm-hmm. why can't we have drug test strips so that you know so the weekend warrior decides he's going to go do cocaine on the weekend at least he could pop in the pharmacy grab some strips and make sure the stuff he's taking isn't going to kill him I mean, it's not a, it's not a the, the be all and end all. And then, secondly, why not have a sign? You know, I spoke to a couple of pharmacists, and they thought it was a great idea. Have a sign that says, "Do you or a member of your family suffer from drug addiction or mental illness?" 
talk to us and they could have brochures that, that, that have been vetted so that there's that, that people will know where to go who to talk to uh, and not have to tr- search around the internet or wait wait for somebody to get back to them with a phone call or tell them where to go which half the time wasn't where we needed to go mm-hmm. and did your son go to uh, detox facilities as well yes he went he went uh, three or four times and and that's part of the problem too is they you know you, they you pay the money mm-hmm. but they have a zero tolerance so if you if you smoke a cigarette they kick you out so you know it it, it just it, it's not practical if you're you know there's no drinking no drugs and no no smoking well people fail i mean people people slip and it is, it, you've got to look at that and 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 be, realize that that's a, an issue that they've got to deal with mm-hmm. i think you had mentioned uh as well, patient rights, and I understand where patient right comes from and privacy, but to a certain degree, as as a parent, it's got to be frustrating you who for you because you're wanting and trying to help, but sometimes you can't get all the information either. We had 500 people at my son's funeral, and we had it was an amazing number of people who came up. He said, "My brother, my dad, my kid, my uncle, my father, all you know, overdosed." And you know, we tried to help them, and we couldn't. Nobody would talk to us, and that's the problem. Is you know, at what point do we? start saying that this is self-harm and we need to do something to step in and deal with it. I mean, you know, under the, the Charter of Freedoms, they have absolute privacy. And, and when you're dealing with somebody that's paranoid uh, and then they don't want you to talk to them, the doctors won't talk to you. So we would, you know, you've got family members that know them the best. They know uh, how they're reacting and when they're, when they're reacting. And they've, they've got, you know, a, a lot of information that could be dispatched to the doctors, but the doctors won't talk to you. They won't say anything. So there's got to be something between nothing and everything. You know, I'm, I'm sure that some of the people say it's a slippery slope, but, you know, we, it hasn't worked so far. So maybe we need to do something. You know, I'm not, you know the government needs, maybe needs to look at a notwithstanding clause. To, to deal with mental illness and, and drug addiction, to help you know be able to facilitate um, other people's involvement in the process. Well, when you look at the impact, not just on this province, uh, but all throughout the, the West Coast, Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, uh, you're, you're hearing it across this country, uh, and it is a mix of of COVID and economic situations that people have been through. It's a, it's and mental health and addiction, and the amount of fentanyl that comes into this country as well. And then you add in the issue of um, psychiatric challenges that are there as well. It's, 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 it's incredibly challenging. How long um, had Curtis been dealing with the issue of drugs and just dealing with the psychiatric challenges that he had before him? How many years was well, he it? Started, he started, it was typical for mental illness, starts usually in the mid-20s. He was around 25, 26 when it started, but it took 10 years to get a diagnosis of schizoid affective disorder. You know, and we'd, he'd, he'd overdose and go to the hospital, and then they'd say, Oh, it's, he, we'd say he's hearing voice, and they say, no, no, that's just the drugs that are doing it. And so we believe the doctors. You assume that they know what they're talking about. And so for years, we, do, we just assumed he was doing drugs all the time when he was telling me, you know, hey, I'm hearing these voices. What, you know, what should I do? And, and we couldn't get anybody to help him. And then even when he does get help, it takes three months to see a psychiatrist, and then they see it once a month. And if he, you know, uh, and if, if he misses an appointment, then they leave him a voicemail and, and uh, figure he was going to come back, but there's no follow-through on them. Um, the whole system just needs to be looked at and revamped. Mm-hmm. What's the first thing you would change? Would it be the, the, the issue of just getting pharmacists involved? That's the number one thing initially for you? Well, that's that's an easy fix. It's not very expensive, you know, um, to have test strips and the thing. I mean, how much? You know, I'm sure there's the cost of the test strips, but I mean, it's it's an easy distribution as opposed to having to go downtown, to, you know, to drive downtown or take a bus downtown to get your drugs tested. Um, you know, this that makes a lot a lot of sense. And and they and, and having the pharmacist be able to have information. We need we need to centralize the information so that it's accurate and current so that people know what's going on in terms of, you know, because when you're, when you're in crisis, you don't know where to turn, you know, and, and it's, and because of the stigma, you can't, you know, phone up your neighbor and say, Hey, my, my son's a drug addict. Can you tell me where we sh- I should go? You know, you're, you're dealing with, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's an issue. So we need accurate information that's easily readable, re- re- easily re- re- ready to be accessed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's. The, we just didn't have that. We go go one place, you go another. You go on the internet. It's all over the place. And you, even when you talk to the specialists, half the time they didn't even know what they, they were talking about. And your GPs, they're. I mean, God bless them. They work hard, but they. I mean, they're just overworked and they don't have time to deal with mental illness. Especially my son. He had he had a multimodal uh, thing. He had uh, bipolar, drug addiction, and you know a severe mental illness. And so doctors just throw up their hands because you know it's it's a real challenge to deal with somebody like that. Yeah. And you know. <laughs> You know, and and they when we talked to, we had a conversation with Minister Whitehead and, and some of her staff, and they said, yeah, that's a real problem. Is trying to get 
services for those particular kinds of people. Yeah. Well, Andrew, uh, I really appreciate you making time today uh, and sharing uh, this story. I know it's not easy, but uh, I really do hope having this conversation does finally get head of government and the heading in the right direction. Thank you so much yeah. for your time today, Andrew. Okay. Thank you. Now, last uh, week, uh, you probably were watching uh, Global BC's News Hour uh, and saw some footage of uh, construction of the Broadway subway in Vancouver. In fact, uh, f- the first of two tunnel boarding machines broke through to the uh, Mount Pleasant Station construction site. Um, the breakthrough represents the first completed tunnel segment of the new line, uh, which will be running from, I guess, the future Great Northern Way Emily Car Station to the future Mount Pleasant Station. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the Broadway subway, I thought it was time for an update uh, because there's still lots of work ahead of us, is Lisa Gao. She's the Executive Project Director for the Broadway Subway Project. Lisa, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jazz. I appreciate you having me on your show. I just thought it was time. You know, lots of conversation. And uh, when you think back of all the SkyTrain lines that we built in this in this city, and I've covered a lot of them as a reporter, I think back to the Canada line, they have such a huge impact on how we move, how uh, things are built in this city uh, afterwards. And they not only move people, but they drive development uh, as well. It's important to get an update in regards to how things are going. So walk me through uh, in regards to where you are in construction. We saw some of that footage last week. Um, what can we expect in the, in, in the weeks and months ahead? Sure. Um, this is a pretty exciting project uh, for our team and, and hopefully for the region as well. And we are making good progress. Uh, just a bit of background for folks that don't know what the Broadway Subway Project is. It's about 5.7 kilometer long. It's uh, six new underground stations. And as you indicated, it will connect the existing VCC Clark elevated station uh, down to Arbutus. And the vast majority of that will be underground, essentially from Great Northern Way down to Arbutus. And a couple of the key uh, milestones for us, uh, the last of the traffic decks that we have been building that will allow vehicles to move on top of the excavation will complete in February. There's just a few remaining left at Arbutus. Mm -hmm. Um, And then between VCC Clark and Great Northern Way, the elevated part of the project uh, that will connect to the existing station is really starting to take shape. And as you indicated, our first tunnel boring machine uh, breakthrough happened just last Monday. Uh, Elsie, who is our first tunnel boring machine, broke through at the Mount Pleasant station. Uh, There are some, I think, some good time-lapse photos uh, that your listeners might, uh, if they haven't seen them yet, they should take a look at it. It is quite a big event. Um, And then, of course, we have our second tunnel boring machine, Phyllis, is expected to break through at uh, Mount Pleasant in March. And then at the rest of the station, we have excavation that is continuing under the existing traffic decks at the four remaining stations along Broadway. So we are still going to see some inconvenience when it comes to traveling in and around Broadway for a while still, because the project, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, has been delayed a little bit, but it, it should be completing sometime in early 2026? Yes, exactly. There, As you know, there was a five-week concrete strike in 2022 and it impacted not only our project but a number of other projects in the lower mainland and so it pushed our substantial completion date from the end of 2025 into early 2026. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you had any word I know the project is supposed to end at Arbutus that is the project itself but obviously people want to see this line eventually get to UBC. I think it is still the second biggest commuting destination after downtown Vancouver in the Lower Mainland, certainly was in my time uh, as a reporter. Um, Have you had any indication uh, yet whether or not uh, funding can be secured? And you may may not be the right person. It may be a political question, (laughs) but you haven't had any information in regards to uh, any future funding being secured for that, that portion of the line. Well, I, I think you said it correctly. Um, I'm, I'm the executive project director for the portion that runs to Arbutus. Arbutus, okay. Um, however, um, you know, I think your listeners probably know that the Mayor's Council, uh, through TransLink's 10-year investment plan, um, they, they are the agency that prioritizes the projects. 
And, uh, you know, obviously the province will work with the mayor's council um, and follow their plan um, when it comes to new extensions to the uh, to the existing yeah, I, I know the project, uh, technically the finish line is Arbutus, but we all uh, would like to see the finish line at UBC. I think that, that makes 100% sense, and I'll, I, will do, I will bring that up with the Minister of Transportation next time he's on the show. But uh, let's touch a little bit on, on, you know, there's obviously disruption. Uh, with these types of projects. We saw that on the Canada line, especially along the Canby Corridor. Uh, we had uh, one small business owner on our program, I believe it was a, the owner of a subway shop who was shutting down mm-hmm. because of the inconvenience. Customers just stayed away. Um, can you walk me through the work that you do with some of these small business owners uh, in regards to making sure they're able to stay open because it doesn't help for this particular small business owner. It didn't work. Um, or, what is the sort of the process you go through to help these small business owners because, you know, this type of construction does turn away customers and it can have a huge impact, particularly on small business. Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. And, you know, certainly we understand that businesses across the city are having challenges, and especially over the last couple of years with with COVID. And and that's uh, part of uh, not not knowing about COVID, but certainly when we first looked at what was happening and what needed to happen in terms of construction, uh, we actually did outreach with the businesses first. And so we met with about 2,500 businesses uh, before we started construction to understand their concerns and also uh, to get information from them on how their customers access them. And that fed into the requirements that we have in terms of constructions. Obviously, the traffic decks that you're aware of is one of the key differences between us and Canby in that we're actually having vehicles that are running along the traffic deck. So Broadway is open uh, for buses and for vehicles during construction. Mm-hmm. Um, but a key things that we heard from the businesses were they wanted to make sure that their customers could access their stores. So we needed to make sure that sidewalks were open. They wanted to make sure that their businesses were visible. Uh, where uh, there was uh, changes in construction, which there is, they wanted to make sure that there was a signage that was sufficient uh, so that customers that are coming at different times during construction understood how to access their businesses. And a key thing as well is they just wanted to know what was coming. So they wanted to understand what construction was coming and what it was going to look like and how it could potentially impact them. Mm-hmm. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to chatting with you uh, again this year because it's such a big project for the city and the region. Uh, thanks for, for your time today. Thank you very much, and I, I appreciate the, the opportunity to participate. Um, I do want to say to folks, if I can, just take 20 seconds, uh, that, that the Broadway is open and accessible, and, and we'd really love to have a couple people come down and access the businesses that are there, including the new ones that are starting up. Um, but as well, if you're interested, there's construction that you can see as well. So if, if you're into... Uh, heavy construction and you want to see what's going on, there's places to view that as well. Thanks so much, Lisa. All right. Thank you. All right, well, let's switch over to BC politics for a moment. Lots going on in Victoria today. Um, Let's first talk about COVID and the fact that so many of us work from home, but increasingly the private sector, in my sense of it, and maybe it's my bias because I think it's the right thing to do, try to encourage as many employees back to work uh, in this environment, in a radio environment, in a, in a creative environment. I think it's more people you have at the office, the better the product. But in every, every business can be different. In the public sector, I understand there was an announcement today that uh, all postings for jobs are open to anyone who lives in a community with a local government office uh, where they could work remotely rather than being, uh, rather than having to work in, let's say, Victoria or Vancouver. Walk me through, where's this coming from? What's the thinking behind all this? Yeah, the big thinking is the fact that the government, like everyone else, is having a hard time attracting workers, especially in very expensive places like Victoria and Vancouver. And so the government is trying to get creative here. They learned during the pandemic that, yes, there are drawbacks. As you mentioned, uh, for many workers, they are much more productive when they are in an office environment uh, with their colleagues and their superiors around them. But there are many people that have worked extremely effectively from home. It allows them to balance out other parts of their lives 
while also acknowledging the fact that recruiting workers to Victoria is becoming increasingly harder. Uh, The average price of a detached home in Victoria is over a million dollars. That is a new phenomenon here. The phenomenon continues in Vancouver, as you can't find a detached home anywhere in Metro Vancouver for less than a million dollars. So finding those workers, uh, you need to, to get more creative. And that potentially means encouraging people to live in areas where housing is less expensive, there's greater access to childcare, uh, you potentially can have additional money to send your uh, you know, go on vacation, send your kids to different schools. You give you give people flexibility there, and the belief from government is you can recruit the best people to do the jobs. We've already noticed it in some of the other postings the government has done. Just a few weeks ago, you and I spoke about it, the announcement around hiring more Crown prosecutors that are desperately needed. Mm-hmm. Part of that application says right on it, those prosecutors can live anywhere in British Columbia in order to do the work, and now we're seeing that in the entirety of the public service. I mean, I still have difficulty with this. Your argument makes complete sense for me, but I, I just think that when it comes to productivity and accountability, it's better to have employees at the office. Yes, in some cases, you can work from home, even part time. But I don't know where society has got where we've gotten to a point where we shouldn't be able to come into work. I think employees must be accountable, and I think when they're at work, they're accountable. And they're more productive. Uh, I understand the cost of living issue, but I don't know how how you can have somebody, let's say, working out of Prince George, even though they should be in Victoria. Yes, you can do Zoom calls, but over the long term, is that going to be productive? Yeah, and that's one of the things the government is going to be forced to test here is where does that productivity remain or where does it lack? And I think there's a belief that over the last three years when workers have been working away from work and a lot of public sector workers were encouraged to come back to the office here in British Columbia. We saw it first from government staff and then we saw it from the entirety of the public service. This is largely a shift led by Shannon Salter, who is the new deputy uh, minister responsible for the premier under premier David Eby, that there's a more leniency towards uh, this sort of virtual work. It, it's going to change the standards, no doubt. It leads to a number of complications around what is your workplace and what is not your workplace and what is covered by your employer and what is not covered by your employer. But I think the government has seen the data from the last three years and they don't believe that there has been a substantial drop-off in productivity uh, because of working from home. How that works long-term, how that changes our relationships with our employer, with our colleagues, that's going to be one of the true tests here. And BC is, um, you know, going at it in some regards solo. There's not a lot of jurisdictions that are looking at these sort of changes in terms of um, encouraging people for certain jobs to stay at home. So, yeah. so we will see what the long-term outcomes of, of well, that are. As you can tell by my comments, put me down as skeptical. When it comes to uh, productivity and accountability, I still think you should be at the office. Uh, you're not going to change my opinion. And I think that's the difference between the public sector and the private sector. I know we're doing it in the private sector as well. But I think we've got to get back to work, and that's where you're most productive and most accountable. Anyway, I I'm will at move home on. right now, Jazz, and I'm being productive. I'm writing a story <laughs> well, for television and talking to you at the exact same time. There is, there are some positions that can do that. I could do the show from home, but I refuse to because I think it's better to be to do it here. And the employer expects me to do it here. I, I did it for about a month; it was fine. Uh, but I was really happy to get back to work, and I, I'm much more wired to be at work and to be around colleagues and produce a show that way. But I get where you're coming from, perhaps. That's the great debate for 2023, uh, just as it was for 2022. Let's talk about the other issue um, that we uh, are spending a lot of our time focusing upon. That's healthcare. Premier David Eby uh, was in Ottawa today. What is he asking for? And and uh, I'm assuming he had a one-on-one with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Yeah, I just spoke to the Premier. Uh, he was with the Prime Minister for about 45 minutes. Uh, They spoke about a wide range of topics from changes uh, to bail conditions, uh, food security, training more RCMP officers, but clearly the big issue continues to be health care. The Premier is in Ottawa today. Uh, Tomorrow he heads to Toronto to meet with Premier Doug Ford tomorrow. All of this sets up next week when the Prime Minister uh, will meet with the Premiers. EB will fly back to Ottawa for that meeting. Didn't get any really good clues, though. Uh, from the Premier on exactly what the Prime Minister is expected to put on the table. But we do know, Jazz, that there's an interest here from Ottawa to sign bilateral one-on-one agreements with every province. And we also know that D.C. is more than willing to sign similar deals to that. They would have tied to them uh, certain uh, measuring points. 
uh, and certain uh, areas of investment. And one of the ones that continues to come up is investment in family doctors to ensure that there are more people in this province attached to family doctors. Uh, there's also a financial commitment here, it seems to be as part of this conversation around uh, mental health and addictions and treatment facilities and beds. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a common goal here from Ottawa and Victoria uh, to find money for across the province to enhance uh, what is provided in terms of treatment and addiction support. Uh, My understanding is the feds pay about 22% of our health care costs in BC. Generally, health care eats up about 40% of a provincial government's budget. The goal is to get the federal government to pay for about 35% of that. Is that, are my numbers right? No, your numbers are exactly right. Uh, And it comes out to some sort of astronomical number of of tens of billions of dollars additional a year from federal coffers to provincial coffers. But there was a time, Jazz, where this was a 50-50 split, that Ottawa and the provinces each put in half for health care. And over time, because it has been a provincial responsibility, more and more of the burden has fell on the provinces. And as we have an aging population, provincial budgets are just struggling to keep up with that. And we are seeing that in terms of erosion of our health care system, uh, but also you know, priorities in other places of the system sometimes don't get the money because healthcare, as you described, eats up so much of it. Well, let's talk a little bit more about healthcare just for a moment, uh, Richard. Um, Adrian Dix, uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix, held a um, press conference today talking about the new payment model uh, for doctors. It was announced prior uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, it is, in many ways, a systemic change to how we pay our doctors. Give me a sense of uh, where you're, he- where you think the system is going. And more importantly, is is there uptick from doctors in regards to what the minister announced? There is uptake, Jazz, but it depends who you ask whether this is a success or not. So there are about anywhere from 3,600 to 4,000 family doctors who are practicing right now a fee-for-service model. And Mm -hmm. this is what's changing is the fee-for-service. So far, a little over 1,000 doctors have signed on to the new system. The health minister told me he's thrilled by this. He only expected on day one that 400 doctors would sign up for this and that many would wait. Mm -hmm. But you speak to some of the holdouts, and they say that they've had months to consider this, and they still have serious questions. They have questions around how many patients they can see. They have questions about the definition of uh, treating severe and uh, serious patients and what that severity index is. They have questions about locums and what do they do when uh, they are away as family doctors and need to get replacements? How do those replacements get paid? They have had these questions for months and the ministry uh, and the minister has not answered those questions for them. And therefore, they have not signed on to the new system. So I don't know how you measure success. The minister is insistent that more and more will sign up. He's confident that more than 80 percent of those eligible will sign up. The reason why signing up is important here is because by making this change, by properly subsidizing and financially supporting these doctors, it will encourage more back into the system, and that will allow more British Columbians, the one million or so people that don't have a family doctor attached, to become attached to a family doctor. So as British Columbians, we need this to work. We need doctors to sign on to this. But if the deal is not what was promised, then there's going to be some resistance. We know it got passed by more than 90% of doctors. So the original deal there is support for, Mm -hmm. how it's working out in the details is what's still lacking. There's still confidence from the minister this is going to work, but, you know, we'll have to wait to see whether this 1,000 or the 3,600 is a win or not. The health minister insists that it is. Yeah, I mean, the the average wage, according to the announcement, would uh, the doctors are making about $250,000 a year based on the old system. Under the new system, they would make 385000 It would also take into consideration time and complexity and uh, hopefully, at least on paper, try to improve the quality of care as well rather than just yeah. every patient is the same. You're paid $25 per visit and you just keep customers, uh, patients going, coming and going and this would hopefully improve the quality of that. But I think you raise a very good point. This was developed and co-developed with doctors of BC and BC family doctors as well. So hopefully there's some uh, uh, pressure perhaps within the system and within colleagues as well to say, look, take a look at this thing. This is a better system than what we have right now. So a very interesting experiment and one I think the government desperately and certainly wants to, to for it to succeed as well. So I'll definitely keep an eye on that. Richard, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure as always, Jeff. Thanks for having me. 
Let's focus on Hollywood for a moment. Now, yesterday you probably heard that actor Alec Baldwin and a weapons specialist uh, were formally charged with involuntary manslaughter in the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on a New Mexico movie set. According to uh, documents filed by prosecutors, they alleged the actor had not been properly trained to handle uh, the weapon that ultimately killed that uh, uh, cinematographer. Now, if if Baldwin is convicted, there are two potential sanctions, as they call it down there. He could face a penalty of up to 18 months in jail and a $5,000 fine. And in another case, they could bring a mandatory minimum prison term of five years uh, as well. Now, prosecutors uh, alleged that Baldwin had been distracted and consistently talking on his cell phone to his family during what should have been a more than one hour firearm training session. Now, joining us now to talk about proper firearm uh, safety, particularly on movie sets, is Dean Goodine. He is a motion picture prop master and author of They Don't Pay Me to Say No, My Life in Film and Television Props. Dean, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Chad. It's nice to be on. Your thoughts uh, on the uh, announcement yesterday of, of the charges? Well, I have to say I, uh, I was a bit surprised about Alec Baldwin's charges, and I'm not giving him a pass as a producer, but as an actor, as a property master who's also armored, we have five basic steps to present a firearm to an actor on set, of which they were all not followed in this case. And the main thing was a live round ended up on that movie set, which is a violation of every rule of filmmaking. It's actually safety bulletin number one in Hollywood. No live rounds on set. No live so rounds. I was, yeah, I was surprised about the actor being charged. Uh, in regards to the process, we don't have to get to the, 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 all the specifics, but if you were in a position like that, what would you go through on a day on the day of filming? And, and no live rounds, perhaps rubber bullets, I, I don't know. But what, what, what's the process uh, on an average day when you have to uh, film something that, in, that requires the use of a firearm? Well, in this case, there was no gunfire required for the action that was taking place in the church. So to go quickly for you, I open my vault, I inspect the firearm. I then inspect, if I have to put dummy bullets into the firearm, I will inspect them all to ensure that they're, they are dummy bullets, no, no way of firing whatsoever. I then lock everything away, take it to set. I go to the first assistant director. If I have to put dummy bullets into the firearm, I show the first assistant director that every dummy bullet has a little marble in it, a rattler. We can all hear it. It won't fire. I make sure that the primers have already been hit because if there's no loading sequence, we load them in. I'm going very quickly because I don't want to mm-hmm. monopolize your time here. I load it in, and then I click it off seven times, six-shot revolver. I click it off seven times. I drive fire it so that they know nothing can fire. Then I show the camera crew, anybody that has to be in the firing area or the firearm area, I show them that it's completely safe as well. And then when the actor comes to set, I show them. I, I repeat the process. I click that firearm off at least uh, probably 20 times before it gets placed in an actor's hand so they know there's no way to fire it. Uh, even with a dummy round, in an era of special effects and amazing special effects uh, in movies, do you need – I mean, can you not just use special effects now to mimic a, a round being fired? Well, I think we're uh, confusing two different things. And the dummy rounds are only used in a revolver. If you're looking at the cylinder, if it's pointed towards the camera, okay. that you can see that there's lead bullet heads on the dummy round. Yes, we can 3D print. We can do many things. Uh, with blank firing, that's a whole different uh, scenario. And there is a lot of CGI now used for blank firing. But it's always situational. When you hire a top professional armor or a top prop master our job is to assess every single shot and we tell them whether we can do it safely or whether we should cgi it everything is situational we plan it uh this movie set was an anomaly everything that happened on that movie set was so shocking that is not how hollywood and we do business that is a complete failure of, of everything that we've been doing. You wouldn't see that here in BC or Vancouver in regards to our very vibrant uh, um, movie industry. You wouldn't see something like that here in your mind. Never. First of all, no live rounds are allowed on set. And that's the case in the United States as well. Act Safe BC were very quick to get involved after the fact. They called myself 
uh, Vancouver's top movie armor, Tom Falcon, and a great first assistant director, Brian Knight, into a special conference. And we talked them through our process and answered all their questions. And they walked away knowing that it could never happen here because everybody has it drilled into them, and what so, the five-step process is. And, and so who are, you, who are you speaking to? I'm not sure. I don't need specific names, but these are people just within the industry here or are they producers or, indus- or the studios uh, they in LA? Were, it was actually BC at the conference. I, ironically, we were still COVID, so we never actually saw our audience. It was a virtual conference. Okay. So all we could see were the questions coming in. So uh, I don't really know who all the people were. I, I, I'm curious, is this, I mean, you say this is an isolated incident in this particular film set. And, you know, a lot of these can be low budget. Um, you know, money is always tight in, in when you're trying to put together a project, uh, a creative project of that sort. How much of this is generally driven also by dollars? And what I mean by that is just money is tight. Funding is difficult. And sometimes uh, people cut corners uh, and that can be uh, in safety regulations. It, it can be speeding up a, um, a production. How much of this is just driven by the desire to cut costs? Well, this whole incident was driven by the desire to cut costs and not recognizing the safety factors involved in regarding your hiring a 21-year-old armor or prop master with no experience. And it comes down to the people who really should be charged here mm-hmm. are the line producer and the production manager. Because as much as Alec Baldwin, the producer, is culpable as well, the reality is that he had no idea who was being hired because he doesn't really care. And it comes down to the line producer and producer that tell the armor who has no experience that she also has to do props, which immediately distracts her from the job at hand. And it was just a whole lot of distraction. It was a toxic set. You had a camera crew lock off that very morning. So none of us can imagine what that would be like because we all work very high skilled professional sets here in BC. Mm-hmm. But we know the anxiety level. And when a first assistant director touches a firearm, that is a complete violation of every rule of film. And the first AD handed the firearm in. Uh, Dean, thank you so much for your time today, my friend. You bet, Jazz. Take care. Cylinders pass intercepted. Canucks have a two-on-one. Morrison, Tanazan, cutting in. Deeks scores! Oh, captain, my captain, the Canucks lead 3-2. As it gets the puck in the right wing corner, nice pass to Morrison, cutting in front. Morrison, Deeks, shoots, scores! Brendan Morrison in triple overtime. There will be a game seven. Now Nazan turns back. Right wing feed, Bertuzzi moves in, cuts to the middle. Bertuzzi tries a shot, scores! A little delayed shot from Bertuzzi. What a clever move by Big Bertuzzi. My goodness. This is when he really makes you woozy. Morrison tips the puck to Nazan, up to Bertuzzi now. Gets into the Chicago's own centers. Nazan shoots, and he scores! <laughs> the streak continues for Bertuzzi as Nazan beat Tebow over the shoulder. It's 2 nothing Vancouver. Don't you just love it? That was when I ruled the world. You're listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW. Hey, welcome back to the show. We'll mention the West Coast Express to Vancouver Canucks fans, and they'll certainly tell you it was one of the most memorable hockey eras in our city. The era, as you just heard, included trios like uh, Marcus Nosland, uh, Todd Bertuzzi, and Brendan Morrison, who combined for 718 points in a three-year period. On and off the ice, it was a really unique moment in Canuck history. Our next guest captured the many stories behind that moment in history in in the uh, new podcast series that has just been released called Unreal West Coast Express. The first two episodes have already dropped with a third one to be released on February 10th. Our guest has spent nearly a year speaking to players, coaches, and journalists uh, from that era, Scott Rinto is a well-known sportscaster and radio and TV personality. He is also the creator, writer, and narrator, narrator of Unreal West Coast Express. So I guess I can add podcaster to uh, his resume as well. Scott, thank you for joining us today. Chad, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've been looking forward to our conversation all day. I guess my first question to you is what motivated you to focus on that era of the Vancouver Canucks? Well, there's a couple of different things, but I think the primary one is it's just such a great story. That line in particular, three different players who began their careers with different organizations and for one reason or another asked to be moved out of those situations. They were also acquired by three different general managers. So three different GMs had a plan for each of them, and then somehow they end up all in the same line that becomes the most dominant one in the NHL. So that alone is just a great story. 
the personal side of it is that I wanted to dig into something long form. It's not something I've had the opportunity to do in my career. So this was, from a selfish point of view, a project that I really wanted to pursue for all of the reasons I mentioned above. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I think of the Canucks, when I started in, in the journalism world at the station, actually, early 1990s, you had Pavel Bure, uh, you had uh, Trevor Linden, and if you look at the, I guess, later in the aughts, you had uh, the Sedins. This this era that we're talking about here is sandwiched in between both of those eras, aren't they? They are, and what's interesting about it is that this era is the one that pulled the Canucks out of the dark days of the late 90s. You mentioned 94 and Pavel Bure. That was an exciting time mm-hmm. for Canucks fans, and it was supposed to continue. And then all of a sudden, it headed downhill. And despite the fact they had a new arena and an owner with deep pockets and star power, they had Bure. They went out and traded for McGillney. They brought in Mark Messier, the most prolific free agent signing still to this day in Canucks history. And everyone thought it was going to be good times. The Canucks are going to go get a cup. Well, they weren't even making the playoffs, and they are finishing at the bottom of the Western Conference. And lo and behold, three players who I teed up before, who weren't even part of the Canucks' plan at one point, come in and become the face of the franchise that leads them out and becomes one of the most exciting teams, not just lines, in the entire National Hockey League at that time. What's the sense of the relationship between Nasland and Bertuzzi and Morrison? Were they friends off ice as well? Yes, they were, and that's something that certainly I explore throughout the course of the podcast. And in particular, the fact that Marcus Naslin and Todd Bertuzzi became very close over their years in Vancouver. And you wouldn't think it based on the outward personalities that we saw. Marcus Naslin, more soft-spoken, very much the classy European captain, and always minding his P's and Q's, if you will. And Todd Bertuzzi, more of a gruff character and one that would sometimes talk to the media sometimes not back in those days it seemed like the odd couple it really did when we found out that they became such good friends but there was that shared background of being in an organization maybe not being given the right opportunity to become the players they ultimately did with Pittsburgh and the New York Islanders respectively so perhaps that was the foundation for that friendship and then Brendan Morrison might be one of the most likable, affable, easygoing guys you'll ever meet. He gets along with everybody. So it's no surprise that he fit in seamlessly with them as well. Well, did you have any difficulty convincing people to, to, to speak to you for, for this longer form, for, form project? One, it's one thing to do, uh, wanting to do something like this. It's another thing to convince people to be part of, uh, 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 to talk about that moment. Because some of those, those memories can be tough. Uh, people may, you know, don't stay in touch. There, there's lots of things. Everything has to sort of align to do a project like you've just been able to accomplish. How difficult was it to convince people to speak? You're right, and not everybody participated. There were more invitations out there, but all of the principals really did, and it began with those three players, Jazz, and it's a great point you make. You're not sure when you dream up this idea that you can get everybody on board, but Marcus, Todd, and Brendan were the first three who said, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that time. Despite the way it ended, everybody had a really good time of their lives and their careers during that era. And once those three were on board, then Brian Burke, Mark Crawford, Ed Jovanovsky, the Sedins, go down the list. They were very happy to participate. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about, uh, as you said, when it ended or perhaps, uh, you know, the most high-profile incident during that era, uh, the hit uh, that uh, Todd Pertuzzi was involved with in regards to Steve Moore. Let's take a listen to that moment. Todd shadowing him, having words with Moore, keeping right after him. Bertuzzi challenging Moore, grabs a hold of him and throws a right hand at him. A cheap shot sucker punch from Todd yeah. Bertuzzi. And now everybody's into it at center ice. Brad May is throwing punches with Kurt Sauer. Hedberg is challenging Abisher from center ice. Abisher saying, why don't you come down here so you can get thrown out. Meanwhile, the May-Sauer fight continues in the neutral well, somebody's zone. Somebody's hurt here. Somebody's hurt here. Well, I think that's Moore who got cold cocked by... Todd Bertuzzi, and Moore is laying prone at center. Uh, that hit, uh, speak to me a little bit about uh, where that fits in the context of the West Coast Express and the broader uh, Canuck franchise in your mind. What, what happened with that hit in your mind? Well, it changed everything, quite frankly. It changed a lot of people's lives, Steve Moore's and Todd Bertuzzi's primarily. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously an incident that nobody will ever forget, and certainly it's something that had to be talked about in the telling of this story. What I really didn't want to do 
with the West Coast Express and the project that I've laid out is make that the focal point. Mm-hmm. It's not, but it is certainly a chapter. And I didn't want to relitigate that case either, Jazz. I don't think that's my place, and I don't think that's the way this story is told. This is their story through their words and their perspective. So, yeah, there were some uncomfortable conversations that had to be had, and it's an uncomfortable chapter. But, yes, it changed everything. Todd Bertuzzi was not the same player after that. The line itself was never quite the same. And maybe that would have been their best year to try to win a Stanley Cup. I suppose we'll never know. But there are those who are close to that team and who covered that team mm-hmm. that believe that they were at the maturity level and at the skill level and it compiled a deep enough roster that maybe that would have been the year that they took a run. Uh, I'm very curious. I mean, it's not like this is 50 years ago. This is the early aughts. Uh, mm-hmm. But but in regards to putting that, that trio, again, how difficult in this modern era is it to put together three people like that that are so incredibly productive i mean it 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 almost seems impossible now i'm not saying it was easy then either but it seems almost impossible now it's a really good point and that's part of the reason it's such a unique and compelling story to me Mm -hmm. now we see a lot of duos put together and then that third player kind of rotates through and sometimes you find one that fits you think of the sedines and all the line mates they played with and then finally alex burrows just fit But just to point out how productive that line was, that remains 2002-2003, which is the 20-year anniversary this year, Mm -hmm. that remains the highest scoring season for a single line in Canucks history. Even the years that Daniel and Henrik won scoring titles, their line overall did not outperform the 272 points that Bertuzzi, Naslin, and Morrison put together in that 02-03 season. And it was during a far different time when there was far less scoring. So they were incredibly productive you're right it's hard to find a line like that it's hard to find it in any franchise let alone the canucks and there's a very good argument to be made that the sedine line is the best in canucks history but i'm not sure you could argue there was a more exciting line ever than this one Uh, my, my final question to you um the um, Canucks are in a different place today. Lots mm-hmm. of excitement at that time. There's even more choice now when it comes to entertainment, not just sports, but think video games, think streaming, everything, uh, social media. Um, how would you describe the present state of the Vancouver Canucks in regards to you know on ice and off ice compared to that era? I don't think they're where they were at the end of the 90s. A lot of people have made the comparison because the organization is in a similar place in terms of transition as to where it was prior to the West Coast Express era kicking off. You know, they just traded Bo Horvat almost 25 years to the day, literally less a week from Trevor Linden being traded to the New York Islanders in a similar three-for-one deal. And boy, wouldn't the Canucks love it if it worked out the same way for them because Todd Bertuzzi was the guy who ended up coming back the other way and Brian McCabe ended up getting them a Sedin. It's a tough state of affairs right now on the ice for the Vancouver Canucks, but if you look, most games are still very well attended. There is still a lot of emotion around the team right now. There's not a sense of apathy in the fan base that I can see right now like there was in the late 90s. So despite the fact that they're going to really need some good things to happen here in the next couple of years to get back on track, the fan base is far more engaged at this point than it was 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Scott, I want to wish you nothing but the best. I've, I've already downloaded the first two episodes. I listened to the first one. Fabulous work, my friend. And as I said, the first two have dropped. The third one's dropping on February 10th. And correct me if I'm wrong here, in total there'll be nine episodes of Unreal West Coast Express. You are correct. You nailed the number. There you go. Well, congratulations to you, sir, and all the best to you, and I highly recommend folks check out Unreal West Coast Express uh, wherever you uh, uh, download your podcast, whether it's Spotify or Apple or or whatever uh, platform you're using. Scott, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for your time, Jazz. I really appreciate the invitation. For listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.